Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Isaac Roberts, who is a Master of Research candidate in Indigenous Studies at Macquarie University. Isaac is a proud Aboriginal man with ties along the east coast of Queensland and New South Wales. After losing his hearing to illness in 2013, he completed the HSC in Wollongong in 2014 and began studying a Bachelor of Arts with a double major in Ancient and Modern History at Macquarie in 2015. He is currently completing his Master of Research in the Department of Indigenous Studies. His research looks at the history and archaeology of the Nempa people of Western New South Wales and the bridging of Indigenous and Western knowledges in the field of archaeology. Zach, you completed your undergraduate degree at Macquarie. Could you talk about what led you to choose to study at Macquarie University? Well, it's a bit of a jump around, I suppose. Um, before I lost my hearing, I actually wanted to study music. But having lost 90% of your hearing kind of puts a dampener on those kinds of dreams, though I suppose it is possible. I've always liked history, though, so I just kind of picked it as not necessarily a backup, but as another pathway to go down. I kind of fell into archaeology, though, purely because I tend to be more of a practical person. So while I love sitting down and doing endless amounts of reading, as you end up doing in history. I've always been drawn more to practical sides of it, so I accidentally ended up with a major in ancient history because I did so many archaeology electives. And then, obviously, now that's taken me into Indigenous archaeology, which led to Indigenous studies, so I've branched around the university a lot, I suppose. And why Macquarie in particular? Well, Macquarie is... Not to sound too full of myself, but Macquarie's got quite a good ancient history program. It's also one of the closest to where I finished high school. Um, when I came into university, I was still quite ill, so I still needed to have not necessarily the safety net of home, but I felt personally I needed to be closer to family. So I didn't want to move to say Melbourne or Brisbane or Adelaide or Perth, which was where a lot of the other good archaeology, ancient history programs are. Yeah, I came to Macquarie before I got sick, actually, for one of the open days. I think I was in year, year nine or ten. And I looked at ancient history because I've always found it cool. And yeah, I think I think it actually might have been Jan, Dr. Jan Tristan, who's now my supervisor, who spoke to me. Um, I'm not sure whether I'd tell him that, though, so hopefully he doesn't listen to this <laughs> if I get too big of a head. <laughs> yeah, I ended up here and I haven't left. Great. It's interesting that you've got that memory from that time, even though you thought about doing music, that you'd already had an interest, as you say, in ancient history, and that was obvious because that's where you went and found out information, even when you came on that yeah. open day. So it's interesting that 
as much as you had to give up the idea of the music. It certainly does sound like it was a close-run thing. Yeah, my parents have always been very much, you, know, you go study whatever you like. like if you're not going to stay there if it's something that you don't like. So, which is why my stepdad used to bring me to open days and stuff, um, you know, right back in year nine and year ten, because he said he wanted me to have like a fairly decent idea of what each university could offer me so that the time did come to applying. Um, I was fully informed, I suppose. Um, so I, al I always went to you know, the ancient history table because I always found it interesting the different ways that different universities teach or at least present the way that they teach in different ways. Like we went to, because I was born in Canberra, I went to an open day at ANU and they were very, you either did sort of like classics or you did like archaeological sciences. Whereas here I found it's a lot more of a blend between them and also they offer things, you know, Egypt and the Near East, China, you know, it's a lot more variety, I suppose, from what I remember anyway. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. And kudos to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> so your final years of secondary schooling were interrupted by illness. Can you talk about how you managed to complete your HSC in those circumstances? I had a very lovely woman. I unfortunately can't remember her name right now. But she was brought into my high school by the Board of Studies. And she would sit in my classes and take notes for me and then deliver them to the front desk or even sometimes she'd deliver them to my house for my parents to prove to me in the hospital. She probably saved my HSC, to be honest. It was hard, though. Um, there were quite a few times where I wanted to just drop out completely. There was... I have one very vivid memory of sitting in the principal's office crying because I genuinely didn't think that I'd be able to get through all of the subjects. And we briefly talked about the idea of doing like a split HSC year where I completed some subjects that I was more comfortable doing then and come back and complete the rest of it the next year. But I wasn't particularly sold on that idea because the idea of drawing it out, it was not even something I wanted to consider at that point. So it was a lot of self-study. My mum got copies of a lot of my textbooks and I would read those in my hospital bed. Yeah, it really helped that my mum was a teacher. No, um, she didn't do any of the subjects that I was actually taking, except for English. She would at least be able to know the places to find answers for things that I needed. So yeah, I definitely wouldn't have gotten through without that support from both the school, who was quite happy for me to... I think I rocked up for about 10 days across the entire HSC year. My teachers were brilliant. I'm still in touch with my English teacher. My ancient history teacher I'd like to get back in touch with, but I have no idea how to. I think she got married and then had a baby, so I've kind of lost track of her. And so what are their names? Sorry? Let's give them a shout out. So your English, <laughs> your English teacher? Yeah, so I'm Miss Dark in ancient history and Miss Mitzes in uh, English. They carried me through. My mum, obviously, my stepdad, who picked up a lot of slack at home with my little brother while I was up in Sydney. My little brother pulled through quite well. I don't think he had a clue what was actually going on. <laughs> yeah, been, it was difficult, but 
I'm stubborn. So. Yeah, which is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> My mum would probably argue against that. But when it's used for good. Yeah. And I guess it's also saying that support network is so crucial. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, that support is also, I think, really crucial in coming out of that sort of period where you very much relied on yourself and the people immediately around you. And then you come into a space like this where suddenly you're back in a classroom and people are telling you when to do things, at least in vague terms, that you have an assignment due on this day and there's not really any movement around that. Whereas in Year 12, I'd be like, oh, actually, I've had surgery. I'm not going to be able to complete this by this date. And they'd go, that's fine, just get it back to us when you can. You know, having a support to get you back into the swing of how the rest of the world operates, I suppose, is also really important. So having lost your hearing, what have been the lasting impacts on the way you experience learning at university and what supports at university have made a difference to you? I think registering with disability services, though I think they're called something different Accessibility, now. I think. Yeah, accessibility, yeah. Um, in my first year, really, really made a difference. Hasn't always been perfect, but having someone who's an advocate, I suppose, who can be that barrier immediately between you and a unit convener or a lecturer or whoever happens to be the tutor of that class has been really instrumental. I've got been able to get... Note-takers? Note-taking is the <laughs> word that I'm looking for. I've been able to get note-taking through almost every single one of my units. Um, when I've had uh, formal exams, I've been able to take them separately, um, have extra time, that kind of thing. Not that I've taken very many exams, but the few units that I have done, um, that's been really good. They've also been really, really good when I've had lecturers who haven't necessarily been open to being accommodating. So my disability advisor, whatever they happen to be called now, has been really, really good with that. And we've gotten to the point where I don't even necessarily talk to her face to face anymore. I just send her an email and be like, hey, this is the situation or hey, this is the unit. And she goes, okay, do you, do you want to come and talk to me about it or do you want me to do you know, X, Y, Z? And then if I can say, oh, I want you to do X, then she'll do it very efficiently. So that's been a big help, particularly because lectures are very hard to lip read when the lecturer is walking across the room and up and down the aisles. Um, so having something to fall back on has been probably the reason I got through university, to be honest. Mm. I, I've actually done some work in the disability services when I was at University of Newcastle and it did stun me at times when I would be working with one of the academic staff and they would question you know, the need of this person and of course you have to keep everything as it should be, confidential about the you know, issue that the person's experiencing. So I would say, I've seen all of this and it's quite a rigorous process. And really, you know, you need to do these things to make these adjustments to help this person get through because that's how you level the t playing field, even though it won't ever really be level. And, you know, I try to work to educate them. So, you know, it is very frustrating that people don't understand that. 
we all know someone with some sort of disability. Mm. And of course, we're only an accident or an illness away from having that ourselves. So yeah. for someone that actually experiences it, uh, it, it must just be not only frustrating, but really demotivating. It is, and it's eye-opening to me to see how many people in these you know, positions of, of privilege treat people with disability or you know, some other kind of impact to accessing education. And the idea of levelling the playing field doesn't even sort of come as a concept. You know, the amount of times where I've asked or requested or had someone request on my behalf for some kind of adjustment to an assignment or um, a lot of times it's in-class tests when there needs to be a lot of communication quite quickly and I've asked for you know, some kind of adjustment or an alternate assessment task and the idea that I would need that is just so baffling even though they've been teaching me all year. It's interesting having met you and spoken to you and we talked about this, the fact that you lost your hearing later, that your speech is unaffected. Yeah. And so often when you're talking to someone who uh, has hearing impairments, their, their voice might show that. And so I think this is another issue is that people don't really get that you have a hearing impairment because of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I was applying for reasonable adjustments for the HSC, I, I wasn't even asking for much. It was mostly just having this wonderful woman who I still can't remember the name of to be there to read out the instructions instead of the examiner because I had gotten so used to lip reading off of her. Even getting those was a real struggle despite the fact I had three audiologist reports, a hearing tests from the last month, you know, documentation from a, a neurologist and an immunologist and my GP all saying that I needed these things. The border study still denied half of them because my marks were so good that they couldn't believe that I was deaf. And I just went, how is having good marks a direct reflection on me being deaf? Like, I'm not stupid, I just can't hear you. <laughs> like, it's true. And yeah. it's that, that crazy thing of, you know, people just speaking louder or... Yeah. You can't actually succeed or yeah. exceed expectations because that doesn't fit with the image that's held of yeah. someone with a disability. Yeah, and it, it all comes back to levelling the playing field. Like, you, I have these adjustments that I can keep achieving. You know, you, someone who's blind brings in um, adjustments so that they can access the content that's in the reading so that they can keep achieving. You know, you put in, you know, ramps for wheelchairs so that students in wheelchairs can get to class. It's like, it's not... It's not bringing other people down, but people seem to think that this idea of levelling the playing field is somehow disturbing other people, even though a lot of the time if you don't put in adjustments, you're not just disturbing the person who needs the adjustments, but you're disturbing everyone else because then that, that one person can't do the assessment. You know, it's, it's weird. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's yeah. hard to understand. So hopefully anyone that listens to this will understand now. Yeah. <laughs> So what led you to choose to study archaeology from an Indigenous studies perspective? Why did I do that? That's a very good question. Maybe tell us first how you, I guess you did the Bachelor of Arts yep. and you completed that and you could have said, right, done that. Uh, but of course you decided to carry on. What led you to do that? I knew that I wanted to go on to further study. 
I don't think I actually made the active choice to do Indigenous archaeology until about halfway through my BFIL year. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something in archaeology because I wanted that more practical aspect. I think I applied for the MRS in the Department of Indigenous Studies because I had quite a good rapport with head of department, Brahman, and I had a good relationship with Jan, who I did quite a few Indigenous cadetships with throughout my undergrad. And then I kind of decided that I just wanted to put those two good relationships together. And out of that came this project that I'm doing. Um, Jan and I had a couple of different ways that we could do it, but Fortunately for us, the Department of Ancient History and Department of Indigenous Studies have built up quite a good relationship. They're both willing to support this weird little off-track vendetta of mine. <laughs> yes. So you used the word vendetta. Can you talk me through why you've chosen that word particularly? Because archaeology is quite often run by a lot of old white archaeologists, so I suppose my vendetta is against that as a field. A lot of what's in my thesis is actually undoing a lot of the work that white archaeologists have done in the past and bringing in more Indigenous perspectives because Indigenous people have been connected to that land for 100,000 years and then white people sort of come in and a lot of what they've done in the past, particularly from, say, the 1930s to like the 1980s, hasn't been done with any consultation of the Indigenous people that actually work in that area who live in that area, who've lived in that area for generations. So my vendetta is against that, mm. I suppose. That's surprised me. I know that's terrible that I'm surprised because I should know that, but the fact that there's been no consultation yeah. seems just stunning to me. Yeah, there's one particular archaeological survey that's been done in the area that my thesis is in, and it was done by a white man in the 1970s, and at that point, the Indigenous people, they either, I'm getting my dates mixed up, they either hadn't been reconnected with the site yet, or they were still in the beginnings of being reconnected to that site. It was made into, um, not a reservation, what was it? I'd describe it as a homestead. There was like a white person living there in a big house right next to this sacred site. And the Indigenous people, for at least 30 years, probably longer, weren't allowed to access that site. And this, this guy came in and he did this survey, and not once in the entire survey of this site, nor like five others, I think, in the area, did he talk to an Indigenous person. Because you talked about how long a period. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just far too large <laughs> period for any person to do in a master of research project. Yeah. <laughs> so Stay tuned for my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and ongoing. How have you then focused that in what, what were you hoping to really look at in your project? That's been an ongoing topic of conversation. Originally when I applied for the MRS, my little description in the application form was saying that I wanted to look at the relationship between Indigenous people and archaeology. That's obviously way, way, way too broad. So we wanted to, we narrowed that down a little bit by look, saying that I wanted to look at the relationship between archaeology 
and ideas of Indigenous identity. So how Indigenous identity is um, reflected in archaeological sites. But I think it was about two months into the BFIL year last year, I realised that that was also too broad because if we were going to look at how Indigenous identity is reflected in archaeology, you would have to have multiple sites. The way that identity is experienced by Indigenous peoples in different communities is different. That's why there's 500 different Indigenous communities. And I can't do a survey from 500 different Indigenous communities between January and October in 2020. So we had to narrow it down again. And Jan said that we should look at building a relationship with the Nempa people. The site, Mount Grenfell, has already had some level of archaeological survey done around it, both by this guy from the Seminoles and also people now. Native title has been granted to the site, so we know that if, you know, going through the process of building that relationship, it's done correctly, it's done to the satisfaction of the Indigenous people there, which was something that was really important to me. And we'd also be able to look at the expressions of identity in that community, in this particular site. And that also gives me something to build off for future research, whether that's in my PhD or you know, personal research. Yeah, yeah something to, to build on, but it's specific enough that I can do it between January and October this year. But in saying that, once we brought it down, it also expanded a little bit because I think it's atrocious that people, archaeologists, researchers, whoever, look at the relationship between rock art and Indigenous people in terms of identity and have established that there's uh, a relationship there. And people have looked at landscapes and Indigenous people and established that there's a link between identity and expressions of identity there. But very few people, I'm hesitant to say no one, but very few publications have looked at the relationship between the landscape, the Indigenous people, and the positions of rock art. So that's what my thesis has turned into. But we're also doing uh, community-based practices, so we're having the community come in and help with the fieldwork. Also you're going to be running yarning circles with them to get their perspectives, so I can put that directly into the archaeological interpretations. So hopefully the outcome will be quite a well-rounded community-based archaeological practice. That's my hope. I trust you can do that. With that, of course, there's a lot of challenges because you're dealing with very sensitive issues, some really appalling practices in the past with no consultation or poor consultation, levels of arrogance and so on. So as an Indigenous person yourself, that will obviously help. But of course, you've talked to me about culturally how you know you you have elders and you are coming in as a researcher, yeah. and yet you also have that level of respect. And so, how you actually balance those? Can you tell me a little bit more about that for you? So, as a indigenous person doing research, there's a couple of different, not necessarily protocols, but expectations of you as both a student and as an Indigenous person. And I think that's quite prevalent when you're doing research outside of your community. Like for me, example, I'm not from the Nempa community. I'm, I didn't even have anything to do with that area before um, I started emailing the Land Council 
and wanting to work with elders in particular, there's a sort of expectation of me as a young person that my role is essentially to sit down and listen. Sometimes I feel like there are Indigenous students doing practical work, doing field work, doing community work, who feel a bit pressured to step outside of that role when they're doing work with community. And I think that, this is just my speculation, I think that that's one of the reasons why there's not a lot of HDR students who are Indigenous, or if they are, they don't tend to do field work until they're older, or they come back when they're older. Maybe they go out, get experience, and come back and do a master's or a PhD, you know, in their 30s or 40s, 50s. For me, I knew that I wanted to do postgraduate research. And when I realised that I was probably going to be going into Indigenous communities, I actually shaped the way the fieldwork was run, um, or will be run so that I don't feel like I'm stepping out of my bounds as a young person, because I'm 23. Mm. It's not my job to go in and start telling elders to sit down and talk with me. Um, so I've built up that side of it as me asking elders whether they're comfortable coming and talking to me, using relationships that I have with other members of the community to maybe be invited to talk to some people. There's a really good fella. He works with the community. He sits on the board for the, the Mount Grandfall Board of Management. He's respected in the community. He's been the person that I've been contacting to like, have agreements and discussions and stuff around the community. He's mentioned that there might be a few elders that he can put me in contact with, in which case I'd go down and I'd sit down with them. You know, I'd probably bring them a cup of tea and say, you know, my name's Zach, this is where I'm from, this is who I am, this is why I want to talk with you. Do you want to talk with me? And if they say no, it's not my job to be like, well, you have to because this is for my research. You know, if this entire part of my thesis falls apart, then it's on me to rebuild that in a different way. There's no obligation for elders to work with me at all. And I think that's something that a lot of non-Indigenous academics don't really understand when they're working with... HDR students who are Indigenous, I think that they think, you know, I have an Indigenous student, so therefore I have a step into the Indigenous community. Or you don't. You have an Indigenous student who might be able to build a relationship there based on themselves, but that's them giving a lot. There's, and there's no, there's no expectation from anyone. So I think that's something that should be more discussed, but it's a, quite a personal thing to discuss that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> this is a way of telling people. And actually, it's such a wonderful way to approach it. It'd be nice if that happened more broadly, because in modern culture, we're losing that elders aspect yeah. across different cultures. And yeah. I think there can be so much to be learned. Yeah. And there's also, there's also the reverse issue, where communities may not necessarily want people coming in and researching them, mm. mostly because a lot of stuff that's been done in quote-unquote Indigenous research isn't done for or with or by the community. It's done at the community. And, you know, there are a lot of academics, you know, non-Indigenous academics who build their whole careers on doing quote-unquote Indigenous research, but none of that is done with consultation of the community. It's, it, has, it doesn't bring anything to the community, but that academic profits on it themselves mm. and they build their career on that 
when they should be doing it with the community and bringing that community into that research. And I think that's something that has gained a bit of traction in academic circles in the last you know, 10 years, particularly it's something that's an ongoing discussion in archaeology. But I think fields like history, for example, modern history, there are so many people there who do Indigenous research who aren't Indigenous themselves and tend to talk down to Indigenous students, other Indigenous researchers or community members when they're questioned about their research. There's almost like there's this inbuilt defensive mechanism that when you, not necessarily call them out, but like question what is this research giving back to this community, they can't answer it because the answer is that there's nothing going back to the community. And that's a sensitive matter that no one really wants to admit about themselves, I suppose, it's particularly if they have a genuine love for the, for the history that they are studying or the research that they are doing. And I can understand that, that there's, there's a reason that there's ethics involved and there's a reason that Indigenous communities want things to be done properly and they want their voices heard because for too long people have been profiting off all this research for Australia's Aboriginal people quote-unquote. Again, there's so much to be learned from that because I do feel that if you're looking more broadly at research, there's a lot of research that doesn't give back to the people that are being researched about. So many examples in history of that happening and so this this could be a way, hopefully, of leading the way by doing the right thing in Indigenous research to perhaps improve the culture in general in research. Yeah. All of those things that you've talked about there, the history of of not involving communities, of misinformation, of perspectives taken from outside rather than within. What changes would you like to see in the Australian history school curriculum? The school curriculum? I think there needs to be more of a strive to put Indigenous perspectives into the things that are already taught to start with. Arrival of the first leap, for example. There are Indigenous perspectives of that happening. They're told in dreaming stories, particularly along the south coast. Darawal people, I think, have quite a few. The Aura people definitely would have some, I think, even up into the central coast. But that's completely ignored. And I think that if you're going to teach about that particular event in Australian history, you should at least put in more than the Indigenous people suffered because there's a lot more to that history. For the first few years, they're, you know, they're, yes, they were killing, but the Indigenous people also thought that these white men were their ancestors returned to them. There are a lot of records of Indigenous people welcoming white men into their families because they thought that this was their departed ancestor. You know? And I mean, like it wasn't fine, but it was not 100,000% horrible. So there was generosity there, yeah. and when it was met with generosity on the other side, it could be good, Yeah. but when it wasn't, then it was a real betrayal. Yeah, and when I talk about this to people who haven't studied history outside of what's taught 7 to 10, they're completely flawed because all that's ever told about that particular event is how horrible it was. And it's like, the horribleness actually came a bit later, but we don't talk about this because... No one wants to talk about things that make them uncomfortable. And I think the idea that white people were perceived as ghosts of Aboriginal people past makes a lot of white people uncomfortable. 
as does putting in you know indigenous perspectives into a lot of things. Indigenous soldiers, for example, if we're talking about World War One and World War Two, which are quite heavily featured in the Australian history curriculum, there are thousands of indigenous soldiers, particularly in World War Two. But in World War One, there's 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 records of thousands of indigenous soldiers who signed up despite the fact that at this point they weren't considered Australian citizens. You know, we don't learn about this. I didn't learn about this until my third year of uni when I happened to do an assignment on it. You know, in World War II, there's an entire battalion of Torres Strait Islander men. You know, um, a lot of Indigenous women signed up as nurses, identifying themselves as Maori. You know, they signed up with New Zealand, they signed up with Papua New Guinea, because they were given a fair go that way. You know, these, these aren't things that, that are taught. I think that's a first step into changing it. And then building on that, you can talk about events in Indigenous Australian history that aren't necessarily just the Stolen Generations and Mabo. You know, there's so much more to Indigenous Australian history than those two events. And a lot of people come out of history in high school thinking that's all there is to it and that Indigenous history is boring. And it's not. You know, there's 100,000 years of Indigenous history, but we don't talk about it. And I think there is some change coming in. I know the Year 11 Ancient History Syllabus has an elective topic. I think it's an elective topic on ancient Australia that looks at history up until 1788. But again, that's, that's an elective topic and not all schools are going to be doing it. So there still is room for a lot more positive change in that regard. I think the people just need to want to do it. Yeah, like Australia is such a multicultural country and we have you know, you know, post-World War II migration, we have, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole area of First Fleet history about um, the Jewish people who came over on the First Fleet. But a lot of people don't realise that Jewish people were here in Australia from 1788. And there's a, a, a topic of another podcast. <laughs> but... <laughs> There's this, all these areas of Australian history that aren't taught and people can then consider Australian history to be boring. Mm. You know? And that's why we have so many people doing other areas of ancient history or European history because it's considered to be much more interesting. And it's like if we change the way that we actually teach Australian history and we stop pushing this, what I call the nationalist agenda of white Australia we stop trying to perceive Australia as a white country rather than a multicultural country, then I think that a lot more people would be interested in Australian history. There's, there's, there's so much there. It's fascinating, really. You just have to go around the country and visit different places and if you can see behind the scenes to the people that came here yeah. and the people that were here and built the country before... It was Go down to your local pub and have a have a beer with someone and say, "Hey, what's your story?" You'll get so much information. You've completed your first year of the master of research, yeah. and now you're about to get into the second year. What advice would you give aspiring MRES students? Stick it out. The first year of uh, the MRES, which is called the BPhil year, is hard. It was very much a learning curve for me in a lot of areas, but Overall, it was very, very beneficial. I made a lot of good friends in that because we all kind of congregated together. The Masters of Research cohort is 
a lot smaller than your bachelor cohort. So you get to know the people in your classes a lot better because they tend to be in all four of your classes a semester and then you meet them again in semester two. I think if it's, if it's something that you do want to go into, if you do want to go into research for whatever reason, it's a good pathway. I've heard a lot of discussion about the benefits of doing the two-year Masters of Research course versus going somewhere and doing an honours year and then going straight into the PhD. And I think there are merits to both. I personally don't think I could have gone and done an honours and then gone jump straight into a PhD. I think that there's a lot more there's a lot more personal growth that I needed to do before I could do a full year of research. And I don't think what I would have produced in an honours year is of the quality that I can produce this year. And I definitely don't think then, you know, knowing me as I am now, I don't think 23 year old me is ready to do a PhD. Whereas that's where I would be if I didn't done an honours year. So if it's something that you're interested in, definitely think about it talk to people, I suppose, people that have done it, people that are currently doing it, academics who teach it. I definitely also got a lot closer to a lot of the lecturers and associate lecturers and professors and associate professors. Did I get all the titles? Thank you, <laughs> um, That teach at that level. I feel a lot more confident emailing them and going, hey, I'm struggling with this. There are a couple of lecturers that I will not name who I definitely would not have felt comfortable doing at this point last year. But now I just email them and go, hey, I'm really stuck on how to do this or where to find this. Can you help me contact the State Library of New South Wales because they have a really rare document that I need to see. And they go, yeah, sure. You know, contact this person, this person, this person, or you know, I'll look into that for you. And then they do get back to you. I think you're treated a lot more as colleagues when you get to a master's PhD level. And oh, that's another difference between the master's research and the honours year is that when you're an honours student, you're, you're still an undergrad. Technically, you're still an undergrad when you're doing the BPhil, but there's a bit more of a blurred line, mm. I think. Yeah. I think I see that, that there's this shift in, in perception of, yeah. you know, because also you've chosen to do something quite difficult, undergraduate's difficult, but that, <laughs> you know, when you're getting to that research qualification, that is a very much a singular experience because you have the project no one else is doing yeah. and it's very self-driven so yeah. I think people recognize that and on the whole would respect that yeah that you are taking ownership a lot more yeah and and that's the other thing is that every single person in your cohort is doing something completely different and there may be some minor overlaps for example I did a unit um, I did a unit session two last year about archaeological theories and it genuinely surprised me how much overlap there was between the theories that I was using and the theories that other people were using despite the fact that Ewan over there is doing ancient Rome and I'm doing Indigenous Australia but we're both looking at identity so there's some overlap in that you know my friend Elle is doing bioarchaeology and another personnel cohort was doing also bioarchaeology but a completely different topic but there was overlaps in not necessarily the theories, but the way that they were applying different things so they could share literature. And these are the things that you, you wouldn't realise if you weren't forced to do these classes. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that will say being forced to do these classes is a bit of an exaggeration, and maybe it is. But 
you know, you end up in these classes with these people that you ne don't, wouldn't necessarily talk to. You, you might have done, you know, a Bachelor of Ancient History or Bachelor of Arts in Ancient History, but if you majored in different areas, then probably wouldn't have had a lot of overlap after first year. But then you suddenly meet these people and they have brand new perspectives to things that you've been stuck on for three months. You know, yeah, you use your colleagues, I suppose. No, and also I think that really helps for the people that do go on to PhD because PhD is more isolated, yeah. particularly in, you know, arts areas uh, where you're not in a, a lab team. Yeah. And so I think some of these relationships that are made in the MRES really continue and help support the PhD candidate. Yeah, definitely, yeah. There's no, there's no shame in contacting this one person that you've spoken to twice and being like, hey, if I remember correctly, you were doing X, Y, Z, can we grab some coffee and talk about it? Because I think that might be applicable to me. And they might go, what a weirdo, that's absolutely not. And then you go and grab coffee and you go, oh, actually, there's a lot of similarities in you know, the base bricks of our thesis that's not necessarily evident on the top when you look at the titles. Good lesson for life, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So what's next for you after the Master of Research? I'm hoping to go on to a PhD. I don't know whether that will be straight away or I might take some time off and do something else. I suppose it depends on the state of my finances. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to do a PhD eventually. I'm not sure beyond that. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it. Now, I guess for you, though, it, you know, having spoken to you a couple of times now, is that real drive about shifting perspectives yeah. and so I guess that's the underlying drive for you however shape or form it takes yeah there's there is a lot more research coming in about indigenous people history archaeology but I think there's a lot of room for new perspectives and new approaches to doing things or looking at things slightly different there are also a lot of areas of Australia that are underrepresented in that research. There's a lot of research coming out of the top end. There's a lot of research coming out of the East Coast. There's a growing body of literature coming out of, you know, Central Australia or like the Adelaide regions, you know, Perth. But there are so much more to Indigenous Australia than that. So I think there's a lot of areas that could use new perspectives or a revisit to what's been published and seeing what things can come out of that, what things can change about that, what we can build on from that. Yeah, I guess that's part of the reason why I've been working with the Department of Indigenous Studies because a lot of what they're doing is trying to bring new perspectives to already existing bodies of research. So I'm looking forward to reading your thesis. I'll let you know when it's done. <laughs> So I do that because I do <laughs> want to read it. So thank you. And thank you so much for today. It's been really illuminating. So thank you, Zach. Thank you for having me. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm -hmm.